0: Welcome to episode number 32 of The Thermal. I'm your host, Terry Tenkate. In this episode, a feature interview with IGC President Peter Erickson and the growing concern over mid-air collisions. We also speak to this year's winner of the BGA's Bill Skull Safety Award. Will Frostman tells us about his online safety tool, FlySafe. And Dr. Dan talks to me about the real danger of altitude decompression sickness and the impact on glider pilots. It's another danger we need to pay attention to. That's all on episode number 32 of The Thermal. The International Gliding Commission recently wrapped up its annual meeting in Copenhagen. The meeting covered all sorts of issues, from updating contests and badge rules to flight safety. For those of you new to gliding, the IGC is the international governing body for the sport of gliding. It's one of several air sport commissions of the Fédération Aéronautique Internationale, or the World Air Sports Federation. One of the workshops at this year's IGC meeting was focused on what to do about the increasing number of mid-air collisions at contests. I've reached IGC President Peter Erickson. At his home in Kolding, Denmark. Hello, Peter.
1: Thank you, Harry, for uh, taking the time to speak to me. It's, I'm looking forward to it. So, I read the
0: report, and based on my reading, the number one issue facing the competition gliding world right now is the risk—the real risk of a mid-air collision—and there have been a lot in the last couple of years. Um, the report says immediate action is required. What? it? What you suggesting what is the recommendation from the IGC on this?
1: So we will do a number of things. We this is it is actually a long term action, but we there are things we can do um, right now, and there are things that will take more time. Um, as you probably read, we will uh, we will mandate the use of of these uh, flashlights uh, on the glider.
0: Either like the the canopy, canopy flashers.
1: Yeah, the canopy. You can also put them under the fuselage. Doesn't really matter. On, on, on the tail. Doesn't matter as long as you have somebody, something right. that, that, that lights up. Um, we will also look into, um, and that's also something we can do immediately, the the geometry of tasks. We want to avoid to having these uh, tasks where you come head on with the competing gliders. So having sort of out of return leg. Um, we are looking into, uh, and that's also going to be, uh, if not this year, then next year, um, to implement new start met- methods um, where we will not require pilots to climb to the to the cloud base, but you, actually you can start. You can select your own start height or altitude. You just have to pass the finish line or finish ring 1,000 meters maximum mm-hmm. below the start altitude. So in that way, we, we want to see, we hope, more disperse. Um, so, um, so that's something we can do right away. Um, in in the
0: analysis that you guys went through, I mean, Ostif was part of this this yeah. analysis as well. So yes. you've got a bunch of data. Yeah, you've got a number of suggestions. But what what in your opinion is the number one cause that we have of, for for these mid air collisions during
1: competitions? Well, if to be absolutely frank, it's uh, it's a willingness to take risks by pilots. Mm-hmm. So we, if we look at these, we we I'll come back to the Ostif. Uh, uh, what, they're, what they're going to do, but, but but we can see one thing when we look at media collations, we see people terminating in the same terminal for a long time, and then they hit each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we see people having different centers, being off-centered, uh, they pass each other twice per, per 360, and they continue doing it for minutes, and suddenly they hit each other, uh, which is not a surprise, so so this is one of the most difficult things to work on, that is actually pilots' uh, attitude to taking risks. And uh, that there's no quick fix for that, but it's something we also will work on, uh, and we'll do that uh, at the competitions where we will organize workshops. And, and um, some pilots, um, are the, it's a few pilots maybe, and they may not know that these are the ones right. taking more risks. <clears> the than the, the than pressure of
0: competing and then... Airmanship yeah. goes out the window. Yeah, yeah. people want to win, and then yeah. they become focused on one thing and not on on safety. Probably
1: that exactly, and that's that's not only for the media, but that's also for other things people do, like like uh, having a a sustainer Indian and starting it at uh, at sixty feet or something like that. Right. Uh, so so this is one of the the areas. Um, so, but to come back to Ostef, um because we, we we do have some understanding of this, but not not uh, not well enough. So um, ostif is trying to start some studies at universities with students to um, to analyze. we have we have thousands of IDC files from competitions. So we want to create a better understanding of of where on under which circumstances do we have. Not not the, the midair, but, but the collision risks, because we cannot statistically, we cannot work on the collisions. We have to work on the encounters where where gliders were too close. So we are going to start, or they are going to start uh, a number of studies to better understand is is when do we have the risks? Is, is that before the start? Is a turning point? Is it um, mm-hmm. where is it? I mean, you've got a crazy uh, amount so of data, is,
0: is what it boils down to, right? I mean, there's an uh, insane uh, amount of uh, data.
1: Yeah. And we also have the tool. We mm-hmm. we have a tool developed that um, that is called the, the proximity analysis tool developed by a couple of Australian guys.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And 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 we will and they they happy to let us use it for or let these universities use that to try to understand uh, where where we have the risk today, but also to create a baseline so that we can see if what we do now has an impact. You know, uh, it's
0: it's interesting. We're talking about technology anyway to analyze things but we've got this we've got two tiers we've got flashers we've got FLARM. we've got all these modern technologies but in the end it's still the human in the cockpit that's making the mistakes we're trying to alleviate the chances of making mistakes but the the failure here is still that human in the cockpit
1: it is i mean it's a human. And, of course, uh, we may think we have good eyes, but, uh, but if you have a, an oncoming glider, uh, the, the, the risk that you do not uh, see it in time is, is high. Mm-hmm. And so we have the, the, the limitations of the human body also. So, it, I mean, it's, it's not that everybody having a a, a air or a close encounter that you can blame them sometimes. Uh, sure. It's simply because we created this silly uh, task with, with where we have oncoming traffic. So we have to look at all the aspects. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that is what we're doing in the short term. Uh, uh, just to mention some of these um, uh, things that that we can do basically uh, this year or, or next year. Now, are the canopy flashers going to be mandatory? Yes, they are from from twenty four. So we, we we have to give a fair lead-in time. So we right. recommend them. We strongly recommend them in uh, f from, from now right away. Uh, we believe that they're mandatory from 24 but that requires uh, an approval of the uh, of the uh, IDC plenary. I'll come back to the how IDC works later on but, mm-hmm. uh, but um, I, I believe that because this is something that has a lot of support I think this is going to be mandatory from from 24. And I mean there, it's stuff- not only so you call it, it's fine to call them cockpit uh, or canopy flashes but they can be placed all over the glider. Right. that's less strobe
0: lights yes. underneath on the tail yeah
1: yeah wherever you put them uh you can have more you can be white they can be red doesn't matter but the, this trick this sort of stuff trickles down to the
0: club level as well so if the igc start to, starting to mandate this for competitions i can see most clubs board of directors will be getting together and going you know what we've got to put these things in all of our yeah. training gliders and our club gliders and do the same thing
1: I think so. That's what we hope. I mean, that's uh, that's how it worked with Flam. Mm-hmm. Uh, Flam is becoming more and more common uh, and um, and it started with the competitions. So uh, we hopefully will see the same development here.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, are there any other decisions or news that came out of the, the meeting in Copenhagen? Well, that you the, guys...
1: the, Yeah, there was a decision for the new start method. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's one of the things that that uh, will. But that again, that there's a lead in time, so it will not be available before twenty-four. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we can't. I mean, there is a sure. You have to. There is a lead-in time. We everybody has to understand the rule, and we do not want to implement something that has a uh, well, on, on, undesirable side effects. Uh, we we need time to understand uh, how it works. Yeah, of course, of but course. Then,
0: now, Peter, one of the things that I. Did, when I knew that I was going to be talking to you, I, I did a little call out to some of the listeners for people who may have had, uh, who have questions for the for the RGC president. And I've, I've got a couple of questions I want to go through, if that's okay. I'm just going to. Yeah, them to absolutely. You. Okay. So I've got one uh, question from the United Kingdom. And I'll read it out. It says very few gliding nations can fund the extensive support that is required by successful teams competing in international gliding competitions which year on year are becoming increasingly expensive and time consuming. What is the IGC doing to develop an approach to competitive gliding that will help to ensure that an international podium place is a realistic aspiration for the average income glider pilot, starting their journey in our wonderful sport?
1: I I wish I had the answer, (laughs) but (laughs) okay. Uh, First of all, we 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 do have, of course, the club class, which mm-hmm. is affordable in terms of of uh, having a competitive glider, mm-hmm. um, and uh, so that's one thing. Um, we there has there has there have been attempts attempts before, like uh, we had the 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 the, uh, the world class glider, the
0: Pw five,
1: but it never became a success, and and I'm I'm afraid that it's difficult to, it's a good idea when you look at it, but when it comes to implementation, uh, the competitive pilots, they buy expensive gliders. Right. And, and, and uh, so. But, you we, know, at the same time, you know, we look at the Olympics and you have all sorts
0: of sailing classes, They have standard dinghies and all sorts of, you know, small sailboat classes. Yeah. I still
1: don't and, see and why that
0: can't work for gliding.
1: It, it can work with the club class, so mm-hmm. uh, there, there we have uh, one class. Um, but but I think it's um,
0: what's well, one? And, it's one class, but the gliders yeah, are all different. But
1: you can also see that uh, there's been very little development in the standard class. So so actually, uh, you can, you can you can still win the world championship in an LS8, and that's a 30-year-old glider. Yeah. Um, so, uh, what, what's driving the prices up right now uh, also for the old gliders is increasing cost of new gliders. So, you can see that that the the 30-year old gliders, they also become more and more expensive because yeah. the new gliders become more expensive. So that's one thing is the glider uh, and, and um, uh, that is one thing that's expensive. The other thing is, of course, if you want to bring your glider somewhere abroad, uh, that's very expensive. Um, yeah. And uh, and we cannot. Um, I mean, sometimes we need to have a world championship in in the U.S. or the Australia or, or South Africa in Europe. Uh, and and for some, it will always be a long travel, an right. expensive travel. And I, so I'd say for for the world championships. Uh, I, I cannot uh, – we do not have any ideas, uh, and this is not the first time this is discussed.
0: Right, there are no subsidies or s- that kind no. of
1: thing. It's just no, IDC is very poor. We have no money. Yeah, no, I'm just <laughs> – no, And, and, yeah. and, and, uh, and uh, of course, one one way, and we are trying with the Grand Prix, actually, uh, to make it um, – the, the idea is that uh, if you qualify – for, you can qualify in, in many countries close to where you live, and, and to go to the Grand Prix final which is in the world championship sh- in principle should be for free that was right. the idea but we and we have had sponsors uh, but it's difficult to find the sponsors that are willing to go in and provide the the, the funding of, mm-hmm. of all this I think the, the way if we really wanted to make uh, to make a worldwide a world championship which is cheap we, we need to find sponsors that means we have to attract uh, the the television companies or the other ones, uh, and that's why we also tried with the companies to make spectacular pictures, put uh, cameras on the gliders, Mm -hmm. but but it's not um, it's it's not working. Uh, We've not been so. It's a niche
0: sport. It's hard to attract people to it. That's that's
1: a that's a problem. Yes.
0: Now here's a follow-up question from me. There has always been talk about having gliding at the Olympics. Is that at all in the future?
1: No, it's not. Uh, we are FAI, uh, so I'll co- come back to FAI also, but that's, that is part of uh, the, we we are associated with the Olympic um, movement, mm-hmm. but to have gliding as a sport, um, that's not going to happen. Uh, that's, uh, that's for sure. We are simply not, uh, again, we are in this sport and we are not, uh, so that will not, uh, that will not, that will not happen.
0: Okay. I have another question from a, a Scottish wave pilot. His question is, why did the IGC change the start-finish line to one kilometer for badges or records and exclude the 45-degree sector? It makes it more difficult uh, for wave pilots, according to this guy.
1: Yeah, but, but we I don't think we just retained that. I think it's always been for records mm-hmm. like that. And you can still use the 45-degree the sector, uh, if you wish, in, in your in In your record attempt mm-hmm. that's up to you so um so that's um
0: so back to the uh, rules the back to reading through the rules
1: carefully on this one yeah, yeah, I think so <laughs> I don't believe that there's been um any change to i'm pretty sure there's been no change to that rule for many many years. it's always been one thousand meter. Okay. Well, I'm, we'll we'll probably get some comments on that. I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. But then I'm happy to enter into a discussion and find out. But yeah, yeah. Uh, But but uh, we, we've changed the other way for competitions, so that's where we, that's where we have the longer, uh, a longer start line and a finish ring they get can be uh, a, a lot uh, bigger. Again, for safety like, reasons. For safety reasons, yes. And um, but for records, as far as I know, it's always been like this. Mm.
0: All right, now I've got another question here from a a Canadian pilot who lives here out west. He's a a competition pilot who's won a lot of uh, contests. His question is, FAI-sanctioned contests in North America are few compared to Europe, and the Pan Am Championships have been a failure. The contest in Brazil had to be cancelled. Is there anything the FAI-slash-IGC is doing to facilitate more North American
1: contests? So, what we have done is uh, we, we have to we, – we, we, to, to have a sanctioned competition, you have to pay a sanctioned fee to FAI, but that's actually reduced for these competitions because we, we also think they should if, – if they could uh, evolve, that would be very good. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the main problem when we look back at the Pan-Americans has been the number of participants and the number of countries participating. And, uh, and the reason I think I think is very simple. That's the distances. Um, because if you look at Europe,
0: right. uh, in, in Europe you can hook up your trailer in Holland and go to France yeah. or Denmark or Germany and have a competition.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and there uh, are uh, about ninety thousand glider pilots within uh, uh, within the, the, the size of Canada or even smaller. Yeah, so half, like, a half of Canada. <laughs> yeah, a quarter. Yeah, of half it. of Canada. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. So I think that is one of the reasons why it's so easy in in Europe to make a regional uh, or continental championship. So we we uh, we do support. The only thing we cannot support with this money because we have no money, but we can we can reduce. Uh, we also reduce the number of uh, of officials we normally require at a sanctioned competition mm-hmm. to make it cheaper. So what but I'm hearing
0: I... from you is that it's 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 a challenge because of distances in North America and trying to to organize these events is just a far greater challenge here than it is in Europe.
1: I think uh, I think that is a reason that the the, the the density of glider pilots is too low. Uh, that's the main reason. Yeah. Yeah. And and the and the cost of going to um to uh, to Brazil. Now the, the the competition in Brazil was cancelled uh, for for basically for two reasons. Uh, first of all the lack of participation there were very few pilots registered but also because of local problems um, that they had in the organization due to the, it was after COVID coming back and they had issues uh, mm-hmm. in, in the organization. So it was not only the number of participants that led to the cancellation, it was also local issues with uh, the organization. I mean, issues, in, in, not in a negative sense that they were uh, in disagreement with anything, but they, they simply couldn't bring together uh, the, the team. Sure, so, fair enough, what, that stuff yeah. happens. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, listen. Thanks for answering those questions from from some of the listeners to the podcast. What we'll, we'll probably do is do this in, a, in at the end of the year again or something when there are more questions because it's a good way yeah, to for sure. talk to the larger community. So um, let's switch gears right now. Let's let's talk a little bit more about the IGC and the FAI. Many of the listeners to this podcast may have been into gliding for a year or two. They really have no idea what the IGC is or the FAI and how it all. Fits together. Why is the FAI so important to the sport of gliding?
1: Well, FAI is the is the World Air Sports Organization. So FAI organizes all worlds all, all air sports. So no. para- parachuting, uh, ballooning. hang gliding, yeah. ballooning, uh, model flying. Uh, so it's been for more than hundred years the the organization that's doing that. Uh, so FAI means Fédération Aéronautique Internationale, and that's. In in, in in more general terms it's a world air sports mm-hmm. organization. It's based in Lausanne and um, in FAI uh, so all the air sports have their own commission. So gliding is IGC, the International Gliding Commission. Uh, right. and, and we look after the all this, the, the, the all, all the how should I put it all the sportive all so the, the, the rules for competitions so the sporting code. Um, badge, the, the line, those for badge flying and oh. for records so this right. is what we're looking after on a worldwide basis uh, and the same for the other air sports. Uh, we of course we also work together between the airports so we mm-hmm. the uh, the presidents meet online once a month to discuss uh, right. issues it's like yeah and and try to harmonize also the way we do things but but we are separated we have our own roles in in ITC. Mm-hmm. so we are part of of, of the world airsports uh, organization um, and IDC itself uh, is organised. So we have a um, we have the, the highest body in IDC is our plenary. So we meet once a year, which just happened uh, in the, in Copenhagen. Exactly, it happens a month ago or early in March in in Copenhagen, and there we we discuss and vote on uh, changes to the to the sporting code, to the rules, changes mm-hmm. to the procedures around competitions, but also allocate uh, world championships and continental championships to the bidders. Right. So so you, you if you wanna hold a world championship, you, you make a bid and you send that in, and it's sent to the delegates. So every gliding country, every member of FAI can send a delegate to the meeting. There are no, normally around 35 delegates in the meeting. Right. So that means we have 35 gliding countries in the world, basically and uh, the, these these 35 persons they they decide they they're the ones that decide on changes to rules to where to allocate the next world championship right.
0: It's like that. each like we have representatives from you know from Canada the United States these they all come together exactly and,
1: yeah exactly
0: so like a little, the little parliament if you will
1: it's a parliament it, they have the political power in in, in idc mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, they also elect a bureau so uh, a group of uh, seven volunteers that then run the organization for the next year, or actually the next two years, mm-hmm. who are elected for two years. And then, but, but of course, the Bureau can only uh, act inside within the, 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 the directors they've got from the, they've received from the from the plenary meeting.
0: Right, on, under those frameworks. Yeah, yeah, like, no. like any
1: other, uh, so like we are sort of the government, so we, we have to, to execute what the, the parliament has decided. Sure. No, then, I've
0: been on the board of directors of my gliding club a number yeah, of times. So you know, it's exa-
1: yeah, so exactly the same principles. Yeah. And, uh,
0: but it's also and hard unpaid work. It can be satisfying, but it can also be <laughs> stupidly frustrating,
1: <laughs> it, usually yeah, around people. <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> well, it's it is unpaid, that's for sure, uh, and uh, no nobody in IDC earns money. They only we have in the we have the head office of, of FAI down in Lausanne, mm-hmm. and they are. Between five and ten. They're not ten. I think they're seven or eight uh, full time employees. So, so, um, right, but that so covers everything from
0: lip- aer- acrobatic flying or aerobatic flying to paragliding they, yes, and they look bl- after everything. It
1: all. So, yes, yeah. so yeah. The, the the amount of paid support we have is very limited. But mm-hmm. gliding is a volunteer sport and it's always been like that. So, I think we're okay with that. Uh, there are other sports that have more difficulties with it, uh, but, but. Okay. But I mean, from the moment you start gliding in a club, you realize that uh, yes, you fly, but you also do something. You, there's a lot of things to do to to yeah, keep Yeah, that's the only way. Yeah. But,
2: yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: Now, how much of your time does it take to be president? I mean, does it take ah, away from your gliding?
1: Uh, sometimes it does. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I I think it's it's roughly I would say 20 hours a week. I I, I something like that. So it's a part-time job. Um, it's a part-time job. I'm part-time retired, so I have a little company, so uh, I try to, I try to uh, so that's fine. I'm, I'm close to retirement, so mm-hmm. that's okay. okay. Uh, I, I devote time to, to, to gliding and to, to flying myself, to mm-hmm. IDC, and to, my, and to my company.
0: Well, th- thank you for taking the time to, to do this work for <laughs> all of us, all, all the glider pilots around the world.
1: Yeah, I, well, that's uh, it's it's a great pleasure. It's a it's a great honor. I mean, mm-hmm. that's uh, I, I'm really honored that I'm sitting in this, and I I do what I can to, to do it correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that uh, of course I cannot satisfy everybody always, but uh, mm. that's how it is. Peter,
0: before I let you go, talk to me a little bit about what you fly and where you fly in Denmark.
1: So I. Um, I'm a member of the local club here in Kolding, where I live. Uh, but I do not fly a lot out there. I fly from the, our national center in Aalborg, which is in the middle of Jutland, where we have the best soaring conditions.
0: That's all the uh, convergence line flying you guys do in the. Yeah, minimizers.
1: that's uh, that's where we have the best. Uh, that's the middle of of, of of Denmark is small, so we get used to flying all water. But mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> this is uh, here we are about um, 50 kilometers from the nearest coastline. So that's, that's more, that, I think that's a Best you can do in Denmark. So up there, I have my glider based. Uh, I have an, an uh, a S33. Nice. Uh, yeah, that's nice. I enjoy that a lot. So um, and I'm still active com- com- uh, competition pilot. To fly the Danish nationals. Flew uh, the worlds last year in in Hungary in Szeged and will fly the Europeans uh, this summer in uh, in Poland in, uh, in Lesno. Mm-hmm. So I'm on the national team. Um, so I think that's actually something we've never tried before. Uh, ITC president, a still active competition pilot. <laughs> Good for you. Good for so, you. So, um, so that's uh, that's. I've been gliding since I was 15. So I've been gliding for 50 years, and wow. um, and um, been in the club. I mean, president of the club, then uh, then ITC secretary, and then uh, moved to France. Lived in France for 20 years, where I flew in France. Mm-hmm. I worked down there and um and that's maybe also why I became the president because i i have- co- good contacts and good support in the French community also so so that's uh, i think that's that's what led to
0: it uh, what did what did you do for work that took you away
1: i'm a air traffic controller i used to be okay. so i so gliding led me to that mm-hmm so, um, and I worked then as controller for about 15 years and then was employed in a European organization for civil aviation called um, Eurocontrol. It's a little bit like the FAA, but for, for Europe, so mm-hmm. an OAR. Um And I worked on research on, on airport capacity and, uh, and throughput, runway throughput. Uh, so and, it, uh,
0: aviation is in your blood.
1: That's yeah, in my blood, yes. Uh-huh. So that's also why I'm interested in safety. And of course that I learned I learned that down there to 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 make safety analysis. Right. So well Peter, 20 it, years it, in France, yes. And it, then back to Denmark. Right.
0: Well it's it's been a pleasure speaking with you and, and learning more about the, the last session you guys had and the Changes you're hoping to make for safety for competition pilots and probably for all of us going down the road. So um, thanks for, thanks again for your time speaking to us and the time that you devote to the sport.
1: Thanks a lot for that. And uh, anytime, I'm always uh, available to for a chat.
0: We will talk again.
1: Sure, that sounds.
0: Peter, have a, have a good summer flying this year and, and we'll chat. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. ITC President Peter Eriksson spoke to me from Kolding, Denmark. should have checked Skysight. I'm sure we've all heard from fellow pilots who've missed a great day because they didn't check the right weather app. Skysight has become the go-to weather application for glider pilots around the world. It's tailored specifically for glider pilots by crunching the last-minute weather data for up-to-date forecasts that can't be beat. If you're interested in trying out Skysight to maximize your cross-country flying, use the voucher promo code THERMAL in capital letters And you'll get a 14 day free trial. The British Gliding Association's Bill Skull Safety Award has been awarded this year to Wolf Rossman for his development of FlySafe, an online gliding incident reporting tool and database. FlySafe gives clubs the ability to analyze data and spot emerging safety concerns. I've reached Wolf Rossman at his home in Glams, Scotland. Hello, Wolf. Congratulations on the award.
3: Hi, Harry. Thank you very much.
0: It sounds like it was well deserved. Um, talk to me a little bit about FlySafe because this work you've been doing, this this safety project, that's the main reason you got this award, I understand.
3: Yes. Uh let me tell you a little bit of background about it. Um within the British Gliding Association and possibly in many countries. Obviously, all accidents and serious incidents have to be reco- uh, reported to the BGA and the investigation boards. But minor incidents, the BGA says, need to be documented and managed locally by each gliding club. Okay. So minor incidents that could become dangerous or or but don't result in any injury or damage
0: so give me an example
3: <clears throat> uh you take off your wing dropped you recovered it but you should have released
0: okay on a, a, on a winch to. for example or even on, an arrow a, toe, on a winch or arrow toe, yeah. yeah
3: that's a sort of incident that should be recorded so we know okay if this happens regularly we need to really do something about it
0: so that means you're looking at how you're instructing, not necessarily the the pilots, I guess, because then... It's, yeah, yeah.
3: yeah. Uh, do we need to change anything in the way we instruct or, or the way we tell our pilots to mm-hmm. behave? So basically, um, I took over as safety officer at the Scottish Gliding Centre in 2017.
0: And that's in uh, Port Moke?
3: That's in Port Moke, yeah. Okay. So uh the previous incumbent of that role he retired and the this documentation of incidents was managed through a spreadsheet that instructors had access to.
0: Um right we're we're talking analog not digital.
3: Just yeah well <laughs> there was a, there was a digital spreadsheet on a shared drive that some people had access to okay. or you could fill in a form. Right. But essentially, it was the, the, yeah, old school. It was the instructors who did that. And there wasn't a lot of feedback. And when I looked at that, there weren't many incidents reported anyway. Um, Because sometimes people, they don't want to report something because they don't want, they see something, but they don't want to get the other pilot in trouble. Right. Or they do something that could have resulted in an accident. And But didn't because they managed to recover and they're embarrassed, yeah. So what I thought is it would be good if everybody had access to it Mm -hmm. easily and could get feedback as well. And also um, if it could be anonymous to some extent, if somebody wanted to report something but didn't want to put their name to it. Right. Because ultimately, it's for the safety officer and uh, the CFI, the chief flying instructor, to analyze trends rather than blame anybody.
0: Right. Now, I I had a look at this at FlySafe because I looked at the user instructions, but it's, it's, Mm -hmm. it's really an online tool, an interactive online tool that it really brings
3: it alive. Yeah, that's the thing. So basically... Um, I have some background in programming, etc. so I decided I can actually create a website mm-hmm. with a database for people to report incidents and to analyze them. So I said, yeah, I let people do it anonymously if they want to, but I also encouraged members to register with the system and then they got more feedback. Because if mm-hmm. you if you don't register, all you can see is the number of incidents over a period of time and the categories, but not any detail. Once you're registered, you can see the detail. But at the same time, we took a lot of care to uh, keep any private data out of it. So you couldn't necessarily identify anybody from it. Okay. Now... um
0: Sorry, it, it, it's been op- in operation at Port at the Scottish Gliding Centre for a few years now. Have you noticed any trends? Has it been paying off for you at the club?
3: Yeah, we we look through it regularly and look at what sort of category of type, what type of incident happens most frequently, and so. For example, one year we had a lot of uh, ground handling incidents, Mm -hmm. just people not taking much care. And so we put a lot of effort in educating people to take more care, (laughs) what they should do, etc. I also started a little after that uh, to bring out a regular safety newsletter. Okay. So uh, all our members could see... What was happening what we should focus on uh, and be continuing this i'm no longer the safety officer Uh, somebody else has taken over that role but he continues with all that
0: you know it's really interesting a lot of these i've been a member of a number of different gliding clubs and a lot of people talk the talk they'll gather some information or they'll have a spreadsheet but where it fails is the between the information gathering and executing a plan to change things that need correcting, and to me, that's where this often fails. Is that what you've seen in other clubs, or, or in your experience?
3: Yeah, that is often the difficult part is trying to trying to see what I, what is actually just the one off thing, and what is a potential dangerous trend mm-hmm. that could that we need to do something about. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the club level. Obviously, the BGA does this at a broader level, countrywide. It collects accident information and it looks at uh, trends there. Right.
0: Uh, but these are the more serious incidents. These accidents. are yeah. serious ones, yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. But we look at the, the minor things and, uh, yeah, just over, I think. Over the last year, we found we've had a lot of issues with people not releasing when a wing dropped. Mm-hmm. And no accidents happened, but it it happened regularly. That uh, People just thought they would get away with it. So we put a campaign into place to educate people. This is what you have to do. Right. As soon as your wing goes down and we let people see it, uh, when they sit in the glider, especially new pilots who are still learning at what angle, what, what the view ahead looks like mm-hmm. when your wing is close to touching the ground. Right. So they release rather than wait until there's some disaster. Now,
0: Wolf, this, this Fly safe program, is it something that other gliding clubs could easily use? Can you, are you selling it? Are you giving it away? How, how is that going to work?
3: Well, we're not selling it as such. <laughs> no. um, a few years ago, another Scottish gliding club uh, approached me and said they would really be interested in it as well. Mm-hmm. And so I said, well, I can give you the software. And they okay. said, no, I, I, we don't really have anybody who could manage that. So I had a look at it and realized I could change it relatively easily so that multiple clubs can use it. And it's still separate for each club. Oh, interesting. So that's what I did. I think that was about 2020 uh, that came out. Um, and uh, most of the Scottish gliding clubs have now taken it up.
2: hmm
3: mm-hmm. And what we can do also... We don't necessarily do a lot of analysis, to be quite honest, Sure, that can across be the clubs, clubs, yeah. But the safety officers and the CFIs at each club, they have actually got access to all the data of all the clubs. Okay. They so can it, see what happens and it, can look at trends. If a club in
0: Australia or Canada, for example, wanted to try out your system, how do they get in touch with you? How do they try and figure this out?
3: Well, there's one thing uh, I've put a website up with a test system mm-hmm. uh, that basically anybody can use and it has some instructions You can, how you can log in and, and try it out and record an incident, see what happens and what it looks like. Uh, so that any club could use that.
0: And what's the address of that uh, website? Um,
3: oh, I need to look it up. <laughs> I'll tell you what. second. I'll get that from uh,
0: you later, and I'll put yeah. it at the back of the uh, at, at the yeah, back of the interview, yeah. and I'll, I'll put it on that. the Facebook
3: yeah. page. We are running this on our server at Port Portmoak. So obviously, if a lot of clubs would take it up, then we would have to think about: do we need a bigger server, or should we split it up, or how right. do we do that? um yeah so since i think since 2020 now uh, there's been at least three clubs using it regularly
0: well it's it's obviously caught the attention of of the bigger gl- gliding communities in in the uk that you received this yeah. bill skull award the safety award now um Bill Skull, I think I've got a book somewhere that he authored. Who, who was Bill Skull? Uh,
3: Bill was, a, I think, was director of operations for the BGA for a while. He okay. also was a CFI at Lasham, uh, which is one of the big UK clubs. Right. Uh, he o- was also involved in a lot of IGC meetings and other European gliding organization and he also was the chairman of the OSTIF, uh, OSTIV, the International Scientific and Technical Soaring Organization and they had a safety, training and safety panel and he was uh, the chairman of that for quite a number of years. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, that's great that his legacy continues on yeah. with the name on this award. So that's, that's yeah, fabulous. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, be, before I let you go, to tell me a little about a little bit about your own connection with gliding. How, how did you start, and and what do you fly now?
3: Well, I started a bit over twenty years ago. Basically, my wife gave me an air experience voucher at the local gliding club and that got me hooked so I learned to fly gliders and at that club small club we mainly had vintage type gliders so I flew K7s K8s uh, I had a share in a K8 later on a share in a Pirat and fun, fun that, gliders they're just yeah, fun they're gliders great, great to fly yeah and now uh, over the last five years i have had a share in a DG 200. So I've been flying that, hmm. and I also some years ago started uh, learning to fly motor glider. So I've got a share in motor glider.
0: So you're firmly hooked in into the aviation hmm. thing.
3: Yeah, definitely.
0: Good. Well, well, Wolf, it's been uh, interesting chatting with you. Thank you very much for your work on Flysafe and. Um, I'm pretty sure you're going to start getting some uh, contacts from around the world with other clubs that are interested in this, in this system. So thank you.
3: Okay. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
0: Wolf Rossman spoke to me from GLAMS, Scotland. If you want to find out more, you can contact him at wolfrossman at gmail.com. That's W-O-L-F-R-O-S-S-M-A-N-N at gmail.com. For a first-hand look at FlySafe, go to test.scottishgliding.com. That's test.scottishgliding.com. The Thermal Podcast is proud to support the made-in-Canada automated task scoring platform Proving Grounds. Developed by a team from the QNIM Gliding Club in Alberta, it's designed to safely turn novice glider pilots into true cross-country soaring pilots, and it really works. Proving Grounds has proven hugely successful and is now in use in Canada, Europe, the United States, and New Zealand. Check out episode number 15 of The Thermal, where I interviewed co-founder Patrick McMahon, For more information, go to their website, which is soaringtasks.com. That's soaringtasks.com. As glider pilots, even flatland glider pilots, most of us know that to prevent potentially lethal hypoxia, supplemental oxygen is a good idea when you're flying over 10,000 feet. But another lesser-known danger is altitude decompression sickness, which is also known as the bends. This is something that most of us associate with scuba diving, but it can affect anyone flying unpressurized aircraft like gliders. DCS is a condition in which gas bubbles can form in your blood while flying and do not have adequate time to be reabsorbed or off-gassed, and this results in painful joints and, and other potentially dangerous conditions. Dr. Daniel Johnson, known as Dr. Dan in the gliding world, is a glider pilot, internist, and a retired senior aeromedical examiner. He knows a lot about hypoxia and altitude decompression sickness. Dr. Johnson also knows there's a lot that's not known about decompression sickness and how it impacts glider pilots. He wants to hear from pilots who've experienced any kind of altitude DCS. I've reached Dr. Dan in Menominee, Wisconsin. Dr. Dan, welcome to the show. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure. So what we're talking about here is decompression sickness and its impact on pilots who are already breathing oxygen. Yes, it's purely altitude. In
4: fact, very extensive Air Force research has been done on this. And in those studies, uh, the subjects or pilots were always breathing 100% oxygen from the ground up.
0: Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So so what is this knowledge gap?
4: Glider pilots and general aviation pilots simply do not know about altitude decompression sickness. In fact, doctors don't know about it. And um, I, I became interested because I've, for years, spoken and written for pilot groups um, and heard by the grapevine that the holder of the women's soaring altitude record, Sabrina Jackentill, <coughs> had had some trouble after her record flight. Um, Indeed, indeed, she did. Um, there is a, uh, a brilliant description of that published by uh, the chief flight instructor of the Black Forest Glider Port from which she took off, uh, Jim Foreman. <clears throat> he was a professional writer, so he did well. And he said that <clears throat> she had difficulty operating co- the controls during descent. Um, <clears throat> she, had, uh, she couldn't get the, the gear down I had to use both hands, she had trouble operating her dive brakes, and after she got out, she had difficulty walking and seemed confused and
0: even though she was on oxygen for this this altitude <clears throat> uh, record flight she,
4: she was she was pressure she was pressure breathing one hundred percent oxygen
2: hmm. Hmm.
4: and they thought she might be having a stroke. they kept her on oxygen just in case, which was exactly the right thing to do. They took her to an emergency room where she spent hours being checked out. Nothing was found, but nobody thought of altitude decompression sickness. And I'm quite sure that at that time there was not a de- not a hyperbaric oxygen chamber in the area. This mm-hmm. was 1979. Okay. Um, she took another wave flight later. <clears throat> Same thing happened, including another trip to the emergency room with with no answers. <clears throat> I discovered this. Uh, right before my talk at the February Soaring Society Convention and asked the audience about experiences. Afterwards, a man came up to me and told me that in the eastern U.S., one of his friends took a wave flight that involved a very fast climb. And when he landed, he seemed confused. Hmm. Uh, My informant knew exactly what was happening and worked very hard to get him to accept uh, transportation to a to a hyperbaric chamber, and he refused. And And the man said that his friend has never been the same since.
2: Wow. That he
4: has suffered some some brain damage. Hmm. I, I investigated carefully whether Sabrina might have suffered damage. Uh, acquaintances have told me she was not the same after those flights. Um, <clears throat> I was able to talk to her children, who of course know her knew her very well. <clears throat> and frankly, it's impossible to tell. <clears throat> The symptoms of mild chronic brain injury uh, tend to be emotional liability, uh, irritability, um, dramatic mood swings, and and possibly a, a mild loss of cognitive ability. While normal adult life generally doesn't stress our brains uh, at all. <clears throat> and uh, Sabrina was famous for, her, for being mercurial emotionally. Um, her children noted only that before she had those flights, she loved talking about soaring and soaring adventures, after which they couldn't get her to talk about them. Um, before the flights, she enjoyed living alone, but had lots of friends and were very social. Um, after the, uh, sometime after the flights, she uh, became more reclusive um, and, uh, and more solitary, moved from Colorado to Florida, <clears throat> and took up aerobatic flying.
0: So out of gliding.
4: No, she she completely left gliding, huh. um, and it seems like she did lose track of her her soaring community in that. So there's a possibility that she may have had some brain injury, and this this experience correlates with what with what's been found when it was seriously investigated. <clears throat> uh, the U two was put into service in 1956.
0: And the U two is this high a high altitude surveillance aircraft that the yeah. U S military operates.
4: Yes, and it operates in above flight level 700, above 70,000 feet. It's designed to have a cockpit altitude, nominally 25,000 feet, actually up to 29,500, depending on the altitude and the weather. Mm
2: -hmm.
4: They had a handful of decompression sickness episodes in U-2 pilots um, until the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. And, and, And in the years following 2002, they had an epidemic of decompression sickness episodes. Um uh, five of those were actually life threatening um, all those pilots were rescued uh, because they were keenly aware of what was happening um, but three of them had permanent brain injury, one of whom is is disabled from flying
0: Wow um, and the guys that were rescued the, were put in decompression chambers immediately hmm. lucky uh, yeah
4: um that led to another interesting study in which they simply uh, simply offered to all active U-2 pilots, uh, I think it was in 2009 or 2010, they, I mean, they offered all active U-2 pilots the chance to have brain MRI scans. Um, um, and they got 102 accepted. Um, they they did MRI scans of those pilots. Then they took uh, 100 age-matched and health-matched controls and scanned their brains. And looked at the differences. Uh, The U2 pilots had what are called white matter hyperintensities. They're signs of of mild brain injury. They're frequent in football players and hockey players, for example, and boxers. Um, Yeah, concussion sequelae. Um, They found that the U2 pilots had four times the volume of white matter hyperintensities as the matched controls. Hmm. and in the in the controls which were normal people they tended to have some white matter and hyperintensities but they were all in the front part of the brain whereas the youtube pilots hyperintensities were diffusely uh, arranged through the brain huh. this, um, is, all, this they, is all this is all really
0: they, interesting man i'm obviously not a medical person and uh, i'm getting my head mm-hmm. around what you're telling me and i'm starting to think wow if i start flying wave I I don't just have to worry about hypoxia, but I really got to pay attention to decompression sickness.
4: That's correct. And one more point about the U2 pilots, they tested their cognitive abilities with several tests and against uh, matched Air Force pilots that were active, same age and health, Mm -hmm. and found that on some tests there was about a 10% decrement in average scores, especially speed of processing um, against the regular pilots. So they're still elite but it looks like they've taken a a small hit.
2: Um,
4: And so it's important to your brain that you avoid this. Um, There are several lessons that are clear from the research um, and from anecdotal experiences. Number one, it takes time to develop the brain injury. Um, It's clear that bubbles start forming in the blood at about 15,000 feet and become more and more frequent as you go higher. Uh, a very nice study done in the 90s showed that at, at, at between 21 and 22,000 feet, the incidence of decompression symptoms dramatically increased from about 10% of pilots to more than half.
2: Wow! And
4: by the time they were at 25,000 feet, uh, 95% of these subjects had decompression sickness symptoms, and as well as bubbles, uh, lots of bubbles in the blood. Now, <clears throat> the studies were done with 100% oxygen. So that subtracts hypoxia from the equation. But the standard ritual in the decompression chamber was to ascend from ground level to 25,000 feet at 5,000 feet per minute. <clears throat> how many how many aircraft or gliders do you know that can go from the ground to 25,000 at that rate?
0: Not many. Not yes. many. Yeah.
4: And And the pilot out east who I was told about who had the brain injury, had experienced an unusually rapid climb.
0: Um, and uh, let me interrupt study, again just for one sec. So this is a, a, a yeah. pilot who went for a way flight, and it was just one flight that created this damage. Correct. Wow.
4: Um, and I uh, sadly, I was interrupted talking to this guy, and I didn't get his particulars to return it farther. I'll, I'll find him eventually. Uh, <clears throat> but the the, the the thing about this is that the Neither the DCS, neither the symptoms in general, nor the brain symptoms occur rapidly. The pilot, the U2 pilot who was worst affected, uh, had a nine-hour mission. He started having joint pain. He started feeling bad, but he thought he had arthritis. He thought he was sitting wrong in the cockpit. He had a he had a mission to perform in constant contact with troops on the ground who were who were you know in in a, in a shooting situation, and so he tried to stay on uh, tried to stay on mission. And then he had to fly out of the out of the hot area back to base, so he 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 was in a in a in a hypobaric situation for a very long time, and that seems to be typical. That there does seem to be a sequence of symptoms, the, and the first thing that happens tends to be joint pain.
0: And this is something uh, all glider pilots now, if we're flying wave, we need to pay attention to this stuff, right?
4: Yep. Um, Ankles, knees, hips, and elbows in particular. Sometimes the skull gets tender. And, and if I, as I've listened to stories, um, the pilots who have been affected tell me about joint pain. Um, for example, um, a, pilot, uh, a pilot told me that he had a friend who seemed quite susceptible to this and, and took love flying wave every time he got out of his glider he would complain about his knees being sore and his knees being swollen mm. and blamed arthritis. Um, uh, and another another gentleman, uh, a glider pilot that also flew Lear 25s in the early 70s, said that he and all, the, all his pilot colleagues got the bends after flying these Lear jets if they flew three or more segments in a day. Um, That brings up the point that repeated ascent to altitude greatly increases the risk of DCS. Hmm. Um, And in addition, he said if he flew one one leg on one day, he felt fine, but if he flew two or three legs the next day, then his joints got sore, which brings up the point that recovery from bubbles in the tissues is not complete or instant, that there's an increased risk of symptoms uh, if you fly two consecutive days.
0: So you are now trying to figure out glider pilots and their experience with decompression sickness, right? So, so that you you can put out a a better warning to us glider pilots. What, what is the, the goal of your research?
4: Yeah, the, the goal is accurate education Mm -hmm. to allow pilots to make wise decisions about continuing flight. Right. And then if they develop symptoms, what to do about it. Um, So first of all, the risk is very low, below 22,000 feet. It's not zero. There are episodes of DCS reported as, as low as five and 8,000 feet, but they're rare. But The, the hallmark in three-quarters of the pilots is joint pain of some kind. Uh, weird skin sensations, it could be anything, itching, burning, uh, hold, cold, numbness, uh, also can occur. Those are called type 1 or minor DCS symptoms, and they warrant, number one, stopping the climb <laughs> and number two, descending. Mm -hmm. There's good research to show that if a pilot descends to half the altitude at which the symptoms occurred, they almost always resolve. So if if I'm putting
0: myself in the cockpit right now, and I'm on a wave flight, I'm climbing up, if I start to feel any of these symptoms, including symptoms of hypoxia, regardless, I shouldn't be trying to figure out whether it's decompression sickness or hypoxia. doesn't matter. I should descend. Exactly. Hmm.
4: In fact the pilot, the pilots who were injured by d c s generally spent time trying to figure it out uh, there is no there is no body pain that occurs that comes with a label as to the cause. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the The serious decompression sickness symptoms generally it seems to become uh, come after the minor ones and at higher altitudes like more than twenty five thousand feet um, but um the the one that would be most subtle are are blind spots in your vision. The eye is part of the brain, and so if a person is is flying high and don't and, and notices patches in in the visual field which are blurry, it's extremely important to come down because that means the brain is being affected. Hmm. Um, same way with headache um, or. Uh, chest symptoms. It used to be called the chokes because people felt air hunger and felt they couldn't get enough air. One pilot told me that it felt like his diaphragm was going to cramp. So um, any chest symptoms would warrant coming right down. And then any mental fogging. Um, It's quite clear that any kind of mental fogging warrants immediate, safe descent to ground. And, And then the first treatment is descent the second treatment is to breathe 100% oxygen for two hours. Hmm. Um, that resolves about 98% of decompression sickness symptoms. If they're not gone at two hours, or if they come back after that two hours, the oxygen should could stay on and the pilot should immediately go to a hyperbaric chamber, uh, which one should know ahead of time is there. And what their twenty-four hour phone number is, which is another take
0: away from me that I'm getting from you. That if I'm, for example, I go to I fly at the Cowley Wave Camp here uh, near near mm-hmm. my house uh, in Alberta. Right. When we fly there, we should know where the nearest chamber is.
4: Yes. Hmm. Fortunately for us, hyperbaric oxygen has become very effective for treating radiation injury to tissues and to healing chronic skin wounds. And so most large hospitals now have a hyperbaric chamber for that purpose.
2: Hmm.
4: And it's possible to find those chambers that are certified uh, by the by the Bar- Hyperbaric Medicine Society and contact the, the leadership and ask about techniques for access if this might happen. Right.
0: Now, now Dr. Dan, you're, you want to reach out to glider pilots that have had decompression sickness or think they may have had it so that you can do the study. How, how do you want to get these people to contact you?
4: I think uh, email is probably the easiest, um, but I'd be happy even for phone calls. Um, my, okay. my easiest email address is just Dr. Dan, D R D A N, Delta Romeo Delta Alpha November at net November Equotango.
0: I will put that up on the uh, the Facebook page for the, the program as well, and uh, people can Thanks. contact you through that. I, I find this fascinating and also a bit scary at the same time. <clears throat> I'm a I'm a flatland pilot. And now I'm going to start flying in the mountains, so it's, it's another thing to pay attention to.
4: Yeah, one more thing about repeated flights.
2: <clears throat>
0: a very
4: nice study was done using the Air Force's standard training protocol for hypoxia. Um they, they did a, a quick ascent to 5,000 feet pressure altitude to check sinuses. Then they did a pre, 100% oxygen pre-breathe for half an hour. Then they go at 5,000 feet a minute for tw- to 25,000 and stay there for 20 minutes, during which they take off the oxygen for two to five minutes, <clears throat> put it back on, go down to 18,000 feet for a 10-minute vision check, and then go back to sea level. They did a very nice study in which they did MRIs, MRIs of, of the brains of those people and found that every single one had an abnormal brain MRI right after, this, right after the experience, showing that there was evidence for mild, diffuse brain injury. So going to altitude does stress the brain. Hmm. They also found, this is important, they also found that the changes had not resolved after 72 hours. <clears throat> And so the advice is, go ahead and go high and, and enjoy the thrill, <laughs> but don't do it two or three days later. Don't do it the same day or even the next day. Give yourself several days to recover from that because your brain wants wants you to do
2: that. Huh.
0: This is really interesting, you know, information that we can use, and uh, I'll certainly be talking about it with my uh, fellow pilots in this part of the world. So, Dr. Dan, before, before I let you go, talk to me a little bit about your own, your own gliding. What do you fly, and, and where, where do you fly?
4: Well, I was able to buy a Ventus CM self-launching sailplane 22 years ago, and uh, I, I fly out of western Wisconsin because it's self-launching. I don't have to go anywhere. Um, back in the day, when I was working as a physician full-time, I was lucky to get 30 or 40 hours a year. And now I can fly more because I'm retired, uh-huh. um, and I just I just fly triangles. It's uh, flat ground, by and large. Um, on good days, I just I just pick some place, pick a few waypoints, and fly a triangle. It's a weak day. I do 100 kilometers. If it's a really strong day, I do 300 or 400 kilometers.
0: And it puts a smile on your face every time.
4: Yes, and it makes you very tired, which is good. <laughs> and I don't I don't get high enough to get DCS, but. I've learned that uh, as an old man, I need to put on oxygen at about five thousand feet. Uh, my brain works a little better, but more importantly, I, I just do not get tired.
0: Right, right. Another bit of information that we can use if we're flying high.
4: Yeah, it's. Um, I, I we to, we spoke in hypoxia at the Sun, the Sun society. You I mentioned that if I use oxygen at a low altitude, that the that I'm just not tired at the end of the day, and they were nods in the audience that were very widespread, other other pilots that had this
0: experience. Hmm. Well, Dr. Dan, I, I tell you, it's been a, a real pleasure speaking with you. I've I've learned a lot, and I'm hoping that pilots who experience decompression sickness uh, will get in touch with you so that we can uh, become more aware of the condition and, and what it means to us as glider pilots. So thank you for uh, for telling us about this.
4: I'd love to hear from them. <clears throat> And I should mention, too, that there's a one big unknown, and that is about how whether nasal cannula oxygen is helpful. Um, the mountain high system is designed to get a higher level of oxygen in the lungs alveoli than other systems. It should be more effective in preventing decompression sickness than other nasal ca- cannulas, but there's no research at all on that. And I'd love to hear about whether pilots are, are using the mountain high system or not if they had
0: symptoms. Right. Hmm. Dr. Dan, happy flying. I'm sure the season is about to start for you, and uh, I, I'm hoping that we can chat again in the future. Good. Thanks for calling. I appreciate it. Okay, you take care. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. Dr. Dan spoke to me from Menominee, Wisconsin. So if any of you have suffered from altitude decompression sickness, Dr. Dan wants to hear from you. He can be reached at drdan that's dr dan at wwt.net that's drdan at wwt.net that's it for episode number 32 of the thermal i will be back again early may with another show I'm off to California later this month, actually, to learn about flying self launching gliders. And I'll be doing that at the Williams Soaring Center. My syndicate owned ASH 31MI will be stationed here in BC's Columbia Valley. And I can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to flying the self launcher with its 21 meter wingspan. I can be reached at the thermal podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. That's the thermal podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for centering the Thermal Podcast, and we'll see you next time. I'm Harry Tenkate, and as always, fly safe.